Bibles to the book of Matthew, chapter 28. Matthew, chapter 28. We, um, well, uh, first off, I want to thank the church for giving Colleen and I the chance to go to the uh, pastor's conference in Jacksonville, Florida at First Baptist in Jacksonville. It was, uh, we were there last week. I know that Brother Paul took good care of you all uh, last week. He's an excellent uh, preacher. Um, Although I I told them on Wednesday night that I found out how I rank. Uh, I got a text from Brother Don, my faithful deacon, Brother Don, and he said, um, let me try to get it exactly right. I would hate to misrepresent him. He said, since you have abandoned us, we have called Brother Paul as our pastor. He said, this will give you more time to travel. So... (laughs) Thank you, Brother Don, for that. Now, I know Brother Paul did an excellent job. I was grateful to him for being able and willing to fill in, and uh, I know that he did a, did a great job, and I know Brother Moons did a great job on Sunday night, and I just know that everybody was blessed by that time. Uh, we were able to go to this conference, which we flew out uh, Wednesday, um, got in there Wednesday night and checked into the hotel, and the conference started Thursday morning. We would have stayed for Wednesday night services, but... The only direct flight from here to Florida was at 7.50 on Wednesday night, and I was not changing planes in a strange airport with a little baby, uh, if I could possibly help it. And I could help it, so I did. And uh, so we went to the conference. The conference was Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, where there were uh, six sermons a day and these different sessions and everything, uh, teaching sessions on how to revive your Sunday school, how to grow your church through groups, how to do uh, uh, women's ministry through counseling that Colleen went to, how to do better nursing home ministry. There's a number of really good hands-on sessions from experts in the field, a lot of ideas that I'm going to be figuring out exactly how we can incorporate, and you say, uh-oh, you know, if you start changing things, we're never sending you to anything ever again. Everybody's always heard the story about how many Baptists does it take to change a light bulb? Change? What do you mean change? My father installed that light bulb in memory of my grandfather. Right? So, who cares if it doesn't glow anymore? That's not the point. That's the so-and-so memorial light bulb. You need to leave that alone. But in the, there's a number of wonderful things. My favorite session that we were able to go to was by the person who was the head of the uh, Southern Baptist Convention's mission board for Asia. And uh, he was talking, he said that in all of their churches that were successful, they had the same pattern for uh, reaching people through groups. He said they'd done it in China, and nobody thought it would work anywhere else. And they tried it in India, and it worked there. And they said, no, they didn't think it would work anywhere else. And he said, everywhere they tried it, it was extremely successful. And that was essentially either doing a Sunday school class or a small group, the same thing, just at different times, and making the people in that class responsible for evangelizing their group, evangelizing people to reach into their group. So you start with six people say, in your group. I ought to step back and explain this. You start with six people in your Sunday school class or your small group or whatever. The teacher's job is to train up one of those people to eventually take over a class on their own by modeling for them good teaching, by letting them practice teaching. Meanwhile, the group members are witnessing to their friends and trying to get their friends to come and join into the group. When the group gets to about 12 people, you split it off into two groups and you repeat. 
Uh, and they said this has been the basic strategy that has allowed them to reach millions of people in China where people could not gather in public churches. And in fact, if you have remembered the book of Acts very carefully, you will see that's very close to what they did in the book of Acts. They had uh, groups meeting in, church, meeting in homes, and they reached their household. And household does not just mean the people that live in your household. It means your oikos, the people that are close to you. You reach the people that are close to you, bring them together, repeat. And if people actually got serious about that, you could transform the world. You know, you know people that I will never meet. And if you reach those people for Christ, you will do something that I could never do. And you know, you say, well, we live in Texas. You know, everybody here is a Christian. Well, there are lots of people that identify as Christians. But G, uh, Romans says, if any man hath not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. <laughs> There are lots of people who believe in God, right, as a, a concept. Say, yeah, I believe there's a God. But they've never actually personally made a decision for Jesus. And Re- Revelation 21 says, whosoever will may come. And so uh, it's very important for us to get away from the idea that evangelism is something that we hire somebody to do. And to get away from the idea that the church service is for reaching the lost. You say, well, wait a minute. If I invite people to church, that's basically the same as witnessing. And as we're going to see today in our text, God has never, ever, 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 ever commanded lost people to come to church. God doesn't command lost people to do anything except repent and believe. But God commands you to go. So this conference was very exciting. I appreciated the time to get away. Uh, I told somebody that the, if I survived this building program, it was going to be really great. And now I feel like we've had a chance to get refreshed and revitalized and uh, be taught ourselves and preached to ourselves and encouraged in a way that you just don't get in day-to-day ministry. That was a really, really wonderful opportunity. I'm grateful for it. This one, I think, was a little better than the one that I went to last year in California. That one was for pastors only, and this one was for pastors and their families, and so there was a session on pastors' wives that Colleen was able to go to, and the it was taught by Erwin Lutzer's wife. You probably don't know who that is, but he's the pastor. He was the pastor of Moody Bible Church in Chicago, a very prominent uh, evangelical pastor, and his wife was a great blessing to Colleen, and they just talked about some of the struggles pastor's wives face. Uh, I have no idea what that could possibly be, because I think being married to a pastor would just be the greatest privilege. And just uh, Everybody's laughing. I don't know, Brother Don, what's going on. I just thought being married to me would be consolation for anything else that would come with it. But apparently, thank you, Brother Don, but apparently, apparently not. This is the same Brother Don who replaced me last week. So, we, you know, uh, no, it was, uh, it was a great blessing to her. It was a great blessing to me. And I want to thank the church for giving us the opportunity to go, for paying our way to go, and for allowing us to have some time away to get refocused. And hopefully... My axe will be sharpened, and we will do better from it. My favorite thing, which I will start out with from this conference, was a, a story or a little thing that um, J.D. Greer said. He said that most people start their ministry, most men start their ministry, expecting to have a big old church and a pretty little wife. Most men get to the end of their ministry with a pretty little church and, well, so... <laughs> <laughs> There's no Gatorade. There's nothing for that. 
We have to, as human beings, decide what it means to be successful in God's service. Now, does it mean that we have got the most money, the most stuff, the most this, the most that, we've got the big old church and the pretty little wife? (laughs) And, of course, the answer to all those things is no. Success, in God's eyes, is not the same as success in people's eyes. Sometimes, everybody around you may say, wow, look at that failure. But God says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. As we consider what it means to be a successful church, say, well, what does it mean to be a successful church? What's a good church versus a bad church? And maybe that's a really difficult question. Because some churches are good churches and are very large. Some churches are good churches and are very small. Some churches are bad churches and are very large. Some churches are bad churches and are very small. Um, I have some pastor friends who take the smallness of their church as a badge of honor in some ways. They say, you know, they may just be the 12 of us, but that just proves we're standing up for what's right. I said, no, that just proves that your building smells like mothballs and that no one has witnessed to anyone since 1994. You know, It's not necessarily... A good thing to be small. It's not necessarily a good thing to be good. God does not see as man sees, but God looks at the heart. So in Matthew chapter 28, you probably know these verses by heart. Verse 16, then the 11 disciples went away into Galilee into a mountain which Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spake unto them saying, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you so much, Lord, that we do not have to guess what it means to be successful that we do not have to guess what your plan is for your church, that we do not have to make up clever things, that we do not need to hold on to things that are just traditions, and that we do not need to create things that are simply innovations, Lord, but that you have given us a simple, clear directive, that you have given us a commission to instruct us in how we ought to live for your glory. I ask God that you would give us the wisdom as a church to know what it is you would have us to do, the courage to do it, and the power of your spirit to see a successful harvest. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The Great Commission. Everybody's heard of the Great Commission before. If you've been in church any period of time, uh, you are familiar with the idea of the Great Commission. Most people don't know what it means. They just know, well, that's that thing, the mission. And it's great. Like frosted flakes. They say, what makes it the Great Commission? What is a commission? Most people think, and it's kind of interesting, people think the same thing when they read John 3.16. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. People read that and they think, God loved the world so much, which is true, but not what John 3.16 says. It says, this is the way that God loved the world. For God thus loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. How did God love the world? He didn't love the world by looking at them from a distance and saying, well, I'm going to send you some flowers, you know, praying for you. He gave, he loved the world by giving his only begotten son. That's what the word so means in that context. People hear the great commission and they think, yeah, it is a pretty good commission. I like that. 
But of course, that's not what it means at all. Earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus had given the limited commission. He had said, go only unto the house of Israel. He said, but until the Son of Man comes in glory, you will have not finished going through the tribes of Israel. He said, I am giving you a limited commission. And he said, until I am glorified, you're going to focus on reaching the tribes of Israel. But you're not going to be done. And before you're done, I'm going to be glorified and I'm going to give you a new mission. Well, when we get to Matthew 28, we know that in Matthew 26, Jesus had been, well, 26 and 27, Jesus had been crucified. And in Matthew 28, verse 1, he had risen gloriously from the dead on the first day of the week. And as he rose from the dead in power, he was glorified. And as he began his glorification, he came in glory. See, we oftentimes think that Jesus' coming only refers to the end of time. But he came back from the dead already, and that's actually often what Matthew means. Jesus came in glory, and he gives them a new mission. He says, no longer are you just to go to the nation of Israel. See, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, he came as Israel's Messiah. And so he came as the king of the Jews. And if they had been faithful, God's plan for Israel was always to make them a light to the Gentiles, to use the nation of Israel to reach the world. I've heard preachers say before that uh, if Israel had accepted Jesus, then uh, Gentiles never would have been saved, which is the dumbest thing that I've ever heard in my entire life. And uh, when God made his promise to Abraham in Genesis, he said, through you shall all nations of the earth be blessed. It was always God's intention to save the entire world. See, he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, that people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation would place their faith in Jesus. But God's perfect will was that the nation of Israel would be faithful to him and that through them he would reach the world. But they rejected him. And so God said, okay, I formed myself a new people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. And through the church, I reach all nations. And Israel was put on the shelf because of their disobedience. They lost the privilege of doing what God had intended for them to do. You know, that can happen to you. You can be called by God into something and you can substitute the great thing God has for you with something that's just good. And you will lose the privilege of working with God in what he had for you. You will miss out on your chance to transform your world. Now, I don't know if that's ever happened to you or not, but I'm willing to bet that for most people it has. That most of us have missed some opportunity where God had something great for us. Because we were too afraid, because we thought, oh, it won't work, because we thought this or that or the other. I shared the story. I want to say it was on a Sunday night, so I won't feel too guilty about uh, repeating it now. The, uh, my friend Chris, who uh, has been down here before, his wife Kelly sang for us, did a, some uh, special music for us at one point. They, are, uh, they joined our mission in spring. They joined Banquo uh, two weeks ago. We're very excited about that. Uh, Brother Joe and Sister Cindy are very excited about that. Last month they baptized three people and had uh, Chris and Kelly joined by addition. They're very, very excited. The, when Chris was saved, I knew him from, oh my goodness, uh, about the eighth grade until... Well, until now, but he was unsaved when I met him. He was raised in a nominally Catholic family. 
I don't know how else to say that except for the fact that he had never been to Mass since he was baptized as a baby, but that he knew he was Catholic because his grandparents were Catholic. Some of you know people like that. Some of you come from that kind of background. I know um, know Courtney will be is not here, but I, I know she'll be comfortable with me mentioning what we've talked about before, that her parents do not have anything to do with the church, but they were sure upset when she was baptized as a Baptist because she was a Catholic. Right? Now, Chris was like that, and I worked with him and talked with him for a long time, years. And he, you know, he wanted to do lots of other things. He started driving and taking classes at the seminary. Okay, at Heritage Baptist Institute in Missouri City. He was taking classes at the seminary without ever being saved himself because he wanted to do everything except give his heart to Jesus. He said, isn't it a good thing that I'm taking classes about the Bible? Isn't it a good thing that I'm trying to be a better person? Isn't it a good thing that I'm doing this and that and the other? And he traded the best thing for good things. But then let me get you a little further. We sat one night and I was talking to him and I was going through the book of Genesis with him and we were just, he just said he wanted to learn the Bible. And I said, well, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So we'll, I'll teach him the Bible and I'll pray that God uses it. At one point he left me. We'd been to four hours or something studying the Bible. And he was just kind of right on the brink. Many of you have been there too. And maybe you know when you're right on the brink of doing something God wants you to do, if you take the plunge, that's one thing. But if you reject it, it gets harder the next time. He came to me and we talked for a long time and he was so close and he said, well, I got to go. And later I talked to him and he said, you know, I got in my car and I was listening to this, you know, soft rock station or something. And he said, but suddenly the words to this song seemed so different. They were about forgiveness and about redemption. <laughs> And he said, it just sort of shook me. And then he said he went and he stopped his car on the way home at HEB to get gas. 10 or 11 o'clock at night. Swipes his card, starts pumping his car. And a lady is on the pump on the other side of him. And she steps over and says, you know, I just want to tell you that Jesus loves you. And gets in her car and drives off. And he got back in his car and he said, all right, God, I get it. And he made a decision to repent of his sins and trust Jesus, and he was saved. And God changed his life. Now, I want you now to imagine that you are that lady sitting in that car, pumping your gas. Like, man, it's 11 o'clock at night. I don't know this guy. Here I am. He just wants to get his gas. And what difference is it going to make for me to say something like that anyway? I don't know. But it sure made a lot of difference to him. You don't know what God is doing with you. You may not see. That lady does not know what those few words that she said did to him. She will probably never know this side of heaven. How many casual things have you said that have changed somebody's life? How many casual things have you not said? that could have changed somebody's life. That's very, very important, isn't it? When we think about our Great Commission, it is great because it is global. There is no one who does not need the gospel. There is no one who is too good 
so that they don't need to be saved and there is no one who is so bad that they cannot be saved. So my question is for you, and I know we talked already a little bit about this just two weeks ago. My question for you is, how are you doing on that? How are you doing on your mission? God has given you one instruction. We talk about a light bulb burning out. What do you do with a burned out light bulb? You throw it away. You say, well, you could keep it. You know, you could use it for something else. No, that light bulb is for one thing. And if that light bulb does not do that one thing, it is a bad light bulb. You ever tried to use a light bulb as a paperweight? Don't. If there's a Christian and that Christian is not a light for Jesus, Jesus is very strong, isn't he? He says, if the salt hath lost its savor, it is henceforth good for nothing but to be trodden out and cast into the foot of men. Whoa. <laughs> Do you believe that a Christian that does not have an effect on the people around them is good for nothing? Could I look at some of you right now and say, you are a good for nothing Christian? Gracious. So here we have Let me give you just a little bit of context here. The 11 disciples, Judas has, of course, killed himself. There's 11 left. They went into the mountain Jesus had told them he would meet them on. And on this mountain, they saw him and they worshipped, but some doubted. You say, some doubted. You scratch your chin on that. You say, okay, they saw him crucified. Here he is alive. What do you mean, some doubted? Are you talking about Thomas? Are they doubting that he's alive? That's not what they're doubting. The last time that they had really had an extended amount of time with Jesus, they had all betrayed him. Now, when you, if you were one of Jesus' disciples and you had abandoned him at the critical moment, John says they all forsook him and fled. If you had been one of the disciples that abandoned Jesus at the pivotal moment and then Jesus calls all of you together, You do not expect a pep talk, do you? It is not that the disciples doubted Jesus. It is that the disciples doubted themselves. Look, it says they worshipped him. Who worshipped him? They did, the eleven. All of them worshipped him, but some of them doubted. It's not that they worshipped him and they doubted him. It's that they worshipped him and they doubted themselves. They said, look at this risen Lord of glory. What's he going to do to me now? (laughs) If you were picking a group of people to transform the world for Jesus' sake, you would not have picked the 11 people who abandoned Jesus when it came time for him to be crucified. If you were picking a group of people to reach Brazoria County for Jesus, maybe you would not pick us. But God did. Isn't that incredible? Some doubted. Some of you, the reason that you have not witnessed is not because you doubt God's power to save them. I think most of us, if I asked you to raise your hands, if you believe God can save anybody who will repent of their sins and trust in him, you'd all raise your hands. There's nobody that you in your head believe God can't save. But in your heart, you say, well, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. I don't, I don't, I don't. What if they ask this? What if they ask that? You worship him, but some doubt. Now, I'm going to give you, I'm going to let you in on a a secret, a a pastor's technique. Don't let this out of this room. If somebody asks you a question when you're trying to witness to them and you don't know the answer, I'm going to give you the magic words 
they're going to get you out of that situation. You say, I don't know. Some of you have never said those three words in that order before. I don't know. Let me find out for you. Do you know when you're talking to that person, you do not have to tell them everything there is to tell them right then. Some of you, you know, think that you do. You think, well, if I can't answer every question they've got and tell them everything about the Bible, God's never going to be able to do anything with them. You know, God works with what you have. So somebody comes to you and they say, well, you know, I just, uh, I don't know about this verse right here. And you look at that and you say, me either. Let me find out and I'll get back to you. But let's talk about, and you redirect it to the real issue. Because somebody can know the answer to every question about the Bible, but if they've never turned from their sins and trusted in Jesus, they will be the smartest sinner in hell. So why would you get distracted by all those things that don't matter? Why would you rearrange the chairs on the Titanic when people are dying? So what do you do, you say? You just swallow your pride, gulp, because nothing is so dangerous as you pretending you know when you don't know. Have you ever had a conversation with somebody like that where they... Uh, they, they don't know something, and it's obvious to everybody they don't know it, but they keep on talking. But maybe on the flip side, you've been around some people that feel like they need to say everything they know every time. Have you, ever, have, have you ever had an argument with your spouse? You ever felt like, well, I need to say everything that I've been upset with for the last 10 years and brace yourself, right? Maybe your spouse is like that. You're not like that. You are an angelic cherub. And you just sit there patiently and say, you know, I'm sorry that you feel that way. That's what it's like with me, but sometimes. Now, if you imagine, if you imagine somebody that needs to say everything every time, boy, that is annoying. <laughs> but do you know, you don't have to say everything. You don't have to tell them everything they ought to know. You talk to them and you say, you know, you need to be saved, and you also need to go ahead and uh, give up this sin and this sin. You need to stop doing this. You need to stop saying this. And you need to mow your lawn. You need to wash your car. You know, something smells like onions. You eat a lot of Whataburger. You know, you don't need to tell them everything that you think every time, right? Because there's one issue. If you go into the doctor and the doctor sees you have stage four cancer, he is not going to lead with, well, you've got borderline high blood pressure, so you definitely need to consider that. And you've got this problem and that problem. You need a haircut and you also. He's going to say, you're dying. Let's take care of the thing that's killing you. You, as a Christian, talk to people all the time who have got lots of problems. But do you know their biggest problem is not what you think it is? Their biggest problem is their separation from God. You say, well, you know, this person is uh, involved in this kind of sin, and, you know, they just they really need to straighten that out. You say, well, that's true, but let's cut it at the root. Let's cut it at the root of the fact that that person is separated from God, is a rebel against God, and if they would humble themselves and say, Lord, I give my heart to you, everything else will follow. Some of you may have heard some interviews with Rosaria Butterfield. I don't know if anybody's familiar with that name or not. She is a, uh, a Christian, married to a pastor. But she, until she was saved, was uh, a feminist studies professor 
the sponsor of her church's uh, LG, uh, not her church, her, her university's LGBT uh, support group. She lived with her uh, girlfriend and was very, very hostile toward Christians. She was writing a book about how wrong Christians were about everything, about how closed-minded Christians were because she was fighting some bill that was going on at the time. And she talked to a pastor, and this pastor invited her over for dinner. She said, well, this is weird. And she said that the pastor sat there and had a whole dinner with her and his family was kind to her and they took her in and answered her questions without ever attacking about the elephant in the room. And she said when she came to faith, what, changed, what the thing was for her, humanly speaking, that made it all make sense, was that to this pastor, her biggest problem was not her lifestyle but her heart. And he was not distracted about all the consequences of her heart. He was distracted about her heart. And so he came to her and he said, look, you know, your problem is not that you picked a lousy degree. You know, your problem is not that you're the, a feminism studies professor. Your problem is not that you're living with your girlfriend. Your problem is that you have a heart that is hostile to God. Will you give your heart to God? Jesus died for you to change your heart. And once she gave her heart to Christ, you know what? All the rest of it fell into place. So as a Christian, when you were witnessing to someone... Oftentimes, your doubt is, well, how am I going to approach this? How am I going to talk about this? What am I going to say if they bring this up? You do not need to talk about their high blood pressure when they are eaten up with cancer. You do not need to brush their hair when they're dead. You've got one problem. And that one problem is the fact that you are a rebel against God. You are a traitor to the kingdom of God. And if you will lay down your arms, then God will transform the rest. See, when we become Christians, we do not repent of our sins. We repent of our sin. You repent not just of individual things. You say, Lord, you can have this and this, but I want to keep this. You say, God, I give all of myself up to you. And I want to be made in your image. Now, that means, here it comes, here comes the responsibility. There's always responsibility in this gospel thing. That means that if you are not living the way that you ought to live, if you have not surrendered your sin, then when you're trying to witness to somebody and trying to reach somebody for Christ, they're going to say, well, you know, you're not that much different than me. Obviously, you don't really believe that all these things are rebellion against God. You don't seem to think it's that big of a deal. You don't have any credibility. You don't have any power. You don't have what Jesus gave you, which is victory over sin. Well, it's, I'm getting ahead of myself. They saw him. They worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. That word power is exousia, authority. He says, I am the king of all of heaven and all of earth. Why is that important? Well, I told you, when he had the limited commission, he, in his humanity, has laid aside his divinity, and the authority he had was over the nation of Israel. But now that he is the risen Lord, everything is his. And that needs to change the way that you think about something. Again, I told you, the Great Commission is about us going out, telling people about Jesus. But what you need to realize is that you are not going into enemy territory. 
you are putting down a rebellion in the kingdom of God. The people that you go to witness to, if they are from any tribe, any tongue, any nation, any class, any sin, are already under the authority of Jesus. We say, well, you know, you just need to make Jesus your Lord. Well, that's, that's fine. That's not really true, right? Jesus is already your Lord. You need to accept him as the Lord that he already is. You need to recognize him as your Lord. So he says, all power in heaven and earth is given unto me. This comes from Daniel 7. We don't have enough time. But uh, I beheld then because of the voice of the great words which the horn spake, I beheld even till the beast was slain and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As concerning the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. He's talking there about the defeat of the Antichrist. And then he describes this. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, who came full of glory up to the throne of God. Who was Jesus. And they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. You know what? Here, he says, look, at the end of time, when Satan is defeated, Jesus has given every kingdom in Daniel. But then in Matthew 28, Jesus says, look, fundamentally, that has already happened. He says the final defeat of Satan is just waiting to be accomplished because it's already been sealed by Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. There is no power that stands against him now. So why do you not need to doubt they said, it says they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus said, all power in heaven and earth is mine. Why do you not need to doubt? Because you do not need to reach people by your own power. When you share the gospel with somebody and they reject you, do you know what? They're not rejecting you. Look, I've got a very offensive message for you. The offensive message that I've got is that you are so wicked and so sinful that God is furious with you. That you've been a rebel against him and the wage of that rebellion is death. And that because of that, he is going to pour out his wrath on you. You were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. That's the bad news. That's very offensive, isn't it? You say, well, I think I'm a good person. Well, you're not a good person. I'm sorry to be the one to tell you this. If you were a bad person... I can explain why you occasionally selfishly do good things. If you are a good person, I cannot explain why you would do bad things. So which one fits your life better? And of course, we always go through the Ten Commandments, don't we? How many of the Ten Commandments have you kept? Don't have any other gods before me. Tonight, there will be millions of people worldwide bowing the knee to the Super Bowl, right? Say, well, I would go to church, but I've got something very, very important going on, you know. I need to check the PSI on those footballs. So you've got all those things that people worship. Have you ever had any of the gods before me? What do you call someone who worship idols? An idolater. Is an idolater a good person? No. Jesus says um, that if you've hated somebody, you're a murderer. You ever hated anybody? You're a murderer. Is a murderer a good person? Jesus says if you commit adultery, if you lust, you've already committed adultery. Is an adulterer a good person? Jesus, all these different things. So are you a good person? And Jesus says, no, you're not a good person. You are a terrible person, rotten from the core. And Jesus says, do you know what? I've got good news for you. After the bad news comes the good news, right? I've got good news for you. Jesus loved you anyway. 
And if he loved you despite who you were, then he doesn't love you because of anything that you do or anything that you could do could ever make him stop loving you. If being bad could make Jesus stop loving you, he would have stopped loving you already. And even though God's wrath was set on you, that somebody deserved to be punished for your sin, Jesus was punished instead of you. So that if you would repent of your sin, this is the part that people have a hard time with, right? Repent of your sin. Say, I lay down my rebellion. God, I am sorry. I deserve your judgment. Please forgive me. And you trust in Jesus. You say, look, the only hope that I have is you. Then he changes you from the inside out. Oh, that's good news. So I've got something very offensive to tell you. And if I'm doubting myself, if I think that it's about me, then I'm never going to say a word. But if I've been given a commission by the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and he says, you better tell people. Do you really believe that people who have not made a decision to be born again are going to go to hell when they die? See, when Jesus talks about hell in the New Testament, he talks about it a lot, but almost never to lost people. You know he talks to hell about? To saved people. He doesn't tell lost people you need to get saved or you're going to go to hell. He tells saved people you need to go reach those people or they're going to go to hell. (laughs) You take that seriously. Do you believe that somebody apart from God will be apart from God forever? And if so, I remember I read a quote once. uh, There was a man who witnessed to an atheist and he said, I don't, the atheist said to him, I don't believe that you believe what you say you believe. So what do you mean? If I really believed what you claim to believe, then I would crawl on my hands and knees across broken glass to try to reach people with this message. And most of us will not even talk to our neighbor or our families or our friends. Do you really believe that right now, if one of them died, they would be cast into hell forever? That there are people right now who believe they're Christians but have never genuinely repented of their sins and trusted in Jesus and you just kind of let them skirt by. Jesus says, I've got a mission for you. He says, all power in heaven and earth is given to me. And what's the mission? Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. Uh, This is almost impossible to translate well into English. I should go ahead and say the word teach in the first part is not the same as the word teach in the next verse. This word is disciple, train, apprentice. And it's the only imperative verb in the verse. Really, the other ones are all participles. Go is a participle. It's a going. Literally translated, it says, as you are going, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them. So what it, your one command is this, to make disciples. We talked about this two weeks ago. Go and entrust the word to faithful men who will entrust it to others also. You've got one job as a Christian, and that is to make disciples. We've got one job as a church, and that is to make disciples who will make other disciples. So how do you make disciples? Well, you make disciples first by going. Literally, it's as you are going. You're already in the mission field. Some people God does call to go to foreign countries. That's fantastic. But do you know there are lost people on your street? There are 1.1 million people in the greater Houston area who identify no religion of the 7 million people in the greater Houston area. One in seven say, oh, I'm not anything. You say, well, you know, we ought to go on a mission trip to Africa or Cambodia or something. (laughs) 
There are people here that need you. What are you doing? Say, well, I'm being worthless. I appreciate your honesty. Thank you. So, you know, he says, go as you're going. And again, there we said it. It is not their responsibility to come. It is your responsibility to go into the kingdom of your father. Go, therefore. What is the therefore? Therefore, because all authority in heaven and earth belongs to Jesus. Don't doubt yourself. Everything belongs to Jesus. So go. Go out and make disciples. That means make people into Christ followers. Okay? Well, how do you do that? Well, they repent of their sins and trust in Jesus. Repent of their sins. Repent and believe. That doesn't mean they change their behavior. That's not what repent means. It doesn't mean they stop sinning. Uh, that, uh, the old hymn says, if you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. It means that in your heart, you turn away from your sin and turn to God. You cannot do one without the other. Your sin's this way, God is this way. You cannot turn to God without turning your back on sin. And you cannot turn to sin without turning your back on God. Listen to me, Christian, that's important. You say, I just don't feel God like I used to. Well, because you have turned your back on him to turn your face to sin. It says, go and teach. Make disciples of all nations. Then, baptize them. Once somebody has become a Christian, you baptize them. In the name, in the authority of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Um, one name, three, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, because there's one God in three persons. He's got one name, Yahweh, Jehovah, Jesus. One God above all gods. You baptize him in that authority. Um, I know oftentimes when we baptize, we say, you know, I baptize in the authority of the church. But really, it's the authority of Jesus. When you say, in the name, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Ghost, it means I baptize you in the authority of the Lord Jesus. I baptize you into his name, that you will now bear the name of Christian. The first thing you do after you're saved is you bear the name of Christian by being baptized. Because if you've never made it public, Jesus says, if you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you. By being baptized, you're saying, Lord, I want to show everybody that I believe you died and were buried and rose again. Lord, I believe that I too have died in my heart. I was buried with you and I'll rise again. Baptized as a symbol. I take on your name. I am now a Christ. Christ's Christian. Christian means belonging to Christ. Some people say it means little Christ. That's actually not true. That was kind of made up by a study Bible. It preaches really well, but it's false, so don't say it. Christian means belonging to Christ. A Herodian is one of Herod's slaves. A Christian is one of Jesus' slaves. Once you're saved, you say, Lord, I died in my old self and I belong to you. Buried into his baptism, buried into his name. So it's our job as Christians to first go out to make people disciples. And you make them disciples, one by, of course, bring them into the family of God, then baptizing them, and then by teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. How does it work? First you're saved, then you're baptized, then you learn to do. You see that too. Teaching them to observe. A lot of times churches think, well, you know, we're teaching them to know. Well, that's not right. If it doesn't change your heart, if I come up here and I preach for 45 minutes every week and you continue to behave the same way as you behaved before, then I have failed. And now as a Christian, I'm not interested in behavior modification. I'm interested in heart change. But if that heart change never changes your behavior, it was not heart change. If I tell you there's a fire in my pocket and there's no smoke, and there's no light, and there's no heat, you shouldn't believe me when I say there's a fire in my pocket. 
If you tell me that you are a Christian and there is no smoke and no light and no heat, I'm sorry, I don't believe you when you tell me that you're a Christian. That's offensive, huh? That's what the Bible says. The Bible says not to associate with any so-called brother who is engaged in continual unrepentant sin. It says remove them from the church. Quit pretending that they're Christians when you don't have any reason to believe that they are. Our commission is very simple. It is our job to be disciples, to go out and reach people to be other disciples. We baptize them to set them apart, and then we teach them to do everything Jesus taught, including, of course, this, that they then would go and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So who are you not willing to reach? Who are you not willing to talk to? When was the last time that you really talked to somebody about how to be saved? I've got a very, one last verse, Psalm 126.5. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. You ever sung the song, bringing in the sheaves? Sowing in the morning, no, sowing in the shadows, sowing in the noontide and the dewy eve. They that sow in tears, they that sow the gospel in tears, will reap in joy. If you have not been reaping people, if you have not been seeing people saved eventually, I'm not saying it's instantaneous, then you have either not been sowing at all, not been witnessing to people at all, or you have not been doing it in tears. Can you go with a broken heart and say, Lord, it's not about me. It's not about drawing attention to myself. It's about that person needs to be saved. Can you go with a broken heart and say, Lord, I believe these people are going to be away from you forever unless they repent and place their trust in Jesus. If you sow the seed with weeping, the Bible says, look at this, look at this, I don't want you to miss this, I'm going to walk over here to make this point clear. They that sow in tears, what's this word? Shall. Is it they that sow in tears may reap in joy? They that sow in tears might, if they get lucky, reap in joy? They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. If we are not reaping in joy, it is because we are not sowing in tears. I know lots and lots of people who say, well, you know, the Bible says things are just going to get worse and worse, and that's the reason we don't see people saved, is because the world has gotten so bad. You know that's not what the Bible says? The Bible says, in those days the love of many shall wax cold. Do you know why the world gets worse as time ends? Because we quit. We stop loving people. We stop loving God, and we damn them to hell by our indifference. The best sermon that I heard this last week at the conference was by uh, Junior Hill. And he said, the reason we do not reach many people for Jesus is because we do not care very much. The Bible says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So my question, if I look at your time, I look at your money, I look at your life, would I have any reason to believe you care very much whether people go to hell or not? Or do you just come in, check your box, say, I went to church this Sunday morning, don't expect anything else out of me. Because then you'll have a lot of blood on your hands. You will have a lot to answer for to Jesus. So we close today. Our musicians come forward. I invite you to stand.